tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the mighty Metro. And uh, we go straight into our wrap of the top business stories. Joining me on the line to take a look at these stories is Snesipo Manindra, independent market commentator, analyst and CA. Snesipo, good evening to you and welcome. Hi, can you hear me? Hello? Hi, Snesipo. How are you? I'm good, and you? I'm well, thank you. Can you hear me now? No, I can hear you. Okay. Snesipo, uh, before we get into all of the, I guess, big stories and the Platinum Belt and KZN and uh, what came out of Transnet earlier on today and uh, some of the remarks made by uh, CEO of the Porsche Derby, let's start off in uh, Lusaka. Uh, yeah, um, I guess... Uh, Hichilenda Hakai... Um, let, me get this, <laughs> let me get this name right. Um, yeah, Hichilema, uh, Hakainde Hichilema, is now the uh, newest president of uh, that Southern African nation, and it uh, does seem uh, the bond markets are responding favorably. We saw a rally and uh, yeah, hitting the highest prices we've seen there for bonds, and I guess reducing the borrowing costs on the back of what the markets expect uh, Mr. Hakainde Hichilema to do. Um, yeah, so um, remember. Remember last year and the year before, Zambia went into default. Mm. And as a result of that, um, as a result of that, you had a situation where there was unlimited trust in the previous government's ability to, um, what's the word I'm looking for, to repay its debts. So remember, you've got, remember what happened in Zambia, and I think sometimes we, and it's again always linked to the resource curse and what happened commodity to, um, prices yes <laughs> as you know in my kids in my kids too and as a result of the dip in the commodities prices you had a situation where the um the zambian government was unable to repay its debt and as a result they went into um default on their bonds now mm. as we all as we all were and um there's a lot of um, the same things that happen to um, most countries. Um, most countries, and remember, the, you know, they had that that, that multi-euro payment they were supposed to pay last year, November, and they were unable to. So I, for one, am very shocked, surprised at the outcome of the elections. Um, why? Well, why are you surprised? Um, quite simple. I didn't think that there was going to be a change in the incumbent. So you expect the PF to remain in power? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, based on what I've seen, not because what I've seen, just some of like, yeah. the things I've been tracking on um, um, terms of social media and uh, the fact that there was, there was, at some point, there was concern that there might be violence. Mm, mm. Remember, look, a lot of people had expected, right, that the margins would be a lot, you know, uh, smaller than maybe what ended up being the case here. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, I guess uh, Hichilema getting uh, nearly 60% in support. I mean, largest margin uh, that has been seen in recent memory um, in that part of the world. But uh, what do you think accounted for that margin? I just think the people were down there. And I do think that there was some level of fairness in this election. Um, I was just I was checking something that someone wrote on Twitter saying that the way Zimbabweans are looking at the Zambian results and wondering what went wrong. 
And <laughs> I was surprised. I, I genuinely, I, I won't lie, I was surprised. I was surprised mm. by the outcome. I was surprised. The, the margin surprised me a lot more. And, yeah, it, it shows that democracy is alive and well in the African continent. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure if you were surprised. Uh, you, so you don't seem as surprised. No, I, I wasn't. I mean... I, I really wasn't. I guess, you know, the, the other issue is, is also a demographic one, Snesipo. I think a lot of um, the people who went out to the polls this time around would not have had, I guess, the affinity to the PF just based on their own experiences in the last while where we saw copper prices much lower than where they are now. So a lot of people came into this ballot with that fear. But I'm shocked at the margin. But um, I guess the outcome wouldn't have surprised me. But also, I mean, kudos to Hakainda Hichilema. You know, after five attempts. Yeah. Hey, Fundin. How is it going to be like, and, and I think for me is that um, I think we need to get into the habit of voting out our, our, our leadership. Say that again? Like, we I, need to get into the habit of? Of voting out leadership. <laughs> voting out leadership. This one party has been in power um, mm. for for a very long time, and it's time we have a change. I think it's I think it's it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a healthy sign of democracy. Look, definitely, Snesip, and I think you know the Zambians have a lot of lessons to not only teach the Zimbabwean people but ourselves here, as you, as you say. I mean, yes, this is not the first time. As well. Yeah, this is not the first time since uh, you know the governing unip uh, then, as it was called, uh, took power, which is Kenneth Kaunda's uh, uh, you know party. Uh, and they were voted out in 1991 when Frederick, Frederick Chiluba, a former trade unionist in Zambia, uh, became the first president. Um, you know, after, I guess, you know, uh, Kenneth Kaunda had been seen as many or by many uh, to be, I guess, a president for life. So, so there's a lot of these, I guess, examples on our continent, Tanzania, you know, um, uh, uh, Zambia, uh, where there's this peaceful transition of power. Um, and maybe Tanzania is not that example because I guess CCM uh, is still in power there and uh, they were the liberation party. But, but I think the point that you make is very important, uh, that uh, th there is a need for some uh, succession, if we think about it that way, and uh, some, uh, I guess, strengthening of our democratic processes across the continent. Yeah, because ultimately I'm a believer in democracy. I am a fundamental that the people shall decide who shall govern. I'm a fundamental believer, and mm. um, I like one of the things I've, I've always said I like about the ANC. Very few things. There's a very few things. This is just one of the things. Is the fact that each ANC president knows their term is going to come to an end. No, they, we might not have a change in party, but like I think, I think that level of acceptance. Um, when we look at what happened in the African continent around mm. democracy. And I sometimes think that we forget that democracy is still a very relatively new concept. Mm, no, for sure. And for I, sure, Snesip. And I think that's it's like we're, where we forget, we forget it's less than 100 years old on the African continent. Like, and, and, and that's just real. And even at less than 100 years, a lot of us, we were still governed by our former oppressors or colonizers. So mm. it is still a relatively new concept. And I... And I like the idea where there is a peaceful transition of power. Sure, and sure. I am, uh, like I said, I was shook. I, I was shook. I'm, so, so, yeah, I, so sensible. Know, I, I mean, literally was surprised. I was surprised. I'm not going to even ask yeah. surprised. Look, I think, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, for me, there are many economic reasons 
uh, that account for this particular electoral outcome. Um, and I think they will unravel over the last while or over the next while. But maybe the other issue I wanted to ask you, um, what goes into Hakainde Hichilema's inbox? I mean, if you are uh, overseeing a country where over 70 percent, over two thirds of your foreign exchange earnings are coming from one commodity, I'm not saying mining, one commodity. Copper. Yes, one. Uh, it's literally then, one. Then I guess, you know, even the sustainability of your power um, is always dependent on how well those prices function. I mean, if, if copper prices were to tank for whatever reason, uh, one, uh, one would imagine that, uh, you know, HH, as he's known, would also find himself uh, dealing with a lot of disaffection and a lot of dissent in his own country. Yes, yeah, so, as, as you like to call him, HH, he... He has a lot of inherent goodwill because he's new. Inherent goodwill already. Mm. Um, it's inherent goodwill from the people, from the resounding, the resounding victory in um, the election. And there's also a lot of um, positivity from the um, international communities, i.e. the bondholders, because of um, the the idea that some of the reforms that they wanted and the fact that they now have a chance of at least getting their money back. There's a chance. Mm. There's a chance. And that level of goodwill. However, and I think you alluded to this, is that the dependency on copper, there needs to be structural reform in the the economic makeup. Of the, unless you unless you address those things on a fundamental basis, I will tell you straight out we're going to be saying the same things two years from now, three years from now, and and part of the reasons why, and then this is where I am with it. So, if I was an opposition leader in South Africa, I would remain. I would remind myself of the fact that only half South Africans who are eligible to vote actually vote. Mm. And that should give you an indication of the power of the electric and and we and we're going to an election year next year. And I think for me that just 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 shows the massive opportunity. I think we and it, it's what I was reading this afternoon. Um, this afternoon, um, in terms of the power of the electric and you you yeah. saw it in the states. What Does should it- I want, I want us to do this. I want us to pause here for a second. We'll continue on that vein. I certainly hope many of the opposition politicians are listening to you. We'll, we'll continue on that vein. We just need to take a quick spot break. And when we come back, uh, we'll allow you to conclude your point uh, on that, uh, I guess, power of the electorate. And then we'll also come back to the story of Transnet and some of our ports. Mm.
22 minutes it is after 7 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. It's our business wrap. Slesipo Manenjwa is, um, I guess, this evening uh, taking a look at the big stories in the marketplace. And, of course, if you just joined us, uh, we've been making sense of uh, the latest developments coming out of Lusaka when Zambia Hakainde Hichilema uh, came in, I guess, uh, in his fourth attempt and, uh, yeah, has ascended to the top seat. And it seems... The capital markets have responded favorably to that development. But Snesipo, you were still saying, I guess, uh, also indicative of uh, the power of the electorate. Yes, it's the power. Because in, 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 if, you, if you look at what happened in the U.S., and I think that's always, I, I, I use it as a very lovely case study, is that what happened in the U.S. is quite simply the electorate. That's what changed the dynamic of the South. People who were eligible to vote actually voted. And I think that's where the turnout was far more. And the reason why it needed to be was that if we want to see change, and I and, and one of the things that I love democracy, I love democracy, I love the idea of it all, but we need to move away from um, keyboard and activism to understanding that structural change can actually come from the ballot box. And it's proven. It, it, it is proven to work. It can come. If people would move away from their thinking that, that their vote doesn't matter. Like, I know people who don't vote. I don't understand it. I genuinely don't understand people who don't vote. I don't understand how you can want change but not be part of an active solution to change. In the U.S., it came down to a couple of thousand votes in Georgia. The state of Georgia, which has a population of half of South Africa, it came down to a few thousand. And I think that's when people don't seem to understand the importance of democracy. And 68%, do you know how big of a margin that is? <laughs> and it, Sheesh, it's driven. Yeah. 68 it's to show that if there's, and that's, and that's also my issue, yeah. is, is that, in South Africa, we've got so, every week there's service delivery protests. How many of those people who participate in those protests mm. are actively involved in electoral yeah. change? Look, I mean, so, yeah, I, I want us to pause on that one because I think it is something we can definitely pick up, uh, you know, closer to election time because I think you're raising a lot of issues. I mean, the first step in a lot of these things is to actually register to vote. Um, and sometimes, you know, you might change your mind and want to vote on the day and, and find that it depots value and you're not able to do so. But, but I want us to shift from that Zambian story and come back to South Africa. It seems many of those firms that have been hard hit by the social unrest we saw in July uh, might see their workers getting tears. We heard this coming through. And it seems now the Ministry of Employment and Labor has given a bit more detail to this particular story. Uh, maximum amount, 6,700 Rand, and uh, I think 3,800 Rand, the minimum as well. Uh, um, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a very good thing. Um, um, and the thing is, remember, it's based, it's based on a sliding scale of your possible remuneration between 38 to 60%. Again, mm. I, I, I really do believe it's a good thing. However, as, I always make the, as we always make the announcement, Unfortunately, the Department of Labor Relief still excludes those in the informal economy. And those are the most hardest hit, I would think, in the KZN um, violence. If you look at the informal traders, if you look at the location, how many of those, um, how many of those businesses actually um, register the employees for, um, 
for unemployment benefits. Again, good idea, but I wish, as usual, that would be widened up to include those in the informal sector because in all of these reliefs, and we thought specifically in the COVID relief as well, is that not everyone is in the net of formality. And that's my thing. I think it's a good thing. I'm not sure if you think it's a good thing, but that's my issue. Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, I, the, I, think, I, I think the other thing, Snezibo, that sort of complicates that factor is how the policy is designed. Uh, so, so if you're formal and you haven't registered your employees for UIF, you can still benefit from this um, on condition that you now onboard yourself and your employees onto the UIF. But that's not possible if you're not even registered as a company. So even, I guess there's always these issues of, you know, how, how do you target it if, you know, people aren't willing to even make that first step in the formalization process. Um, so it does make it a bit difficult. I mean, we saw, we saw during the COVID-19 moment where municipal permits were being issued um, and that potentially would allow you then, even if you're not registered to get some of the UIF, but it's certainly not, yeah, it's certainly more of an art, I would say, than I guess a perfect science. So, so one of my, my, my issues in the government, and what I, one of my issues with our people, Shane, our government, is that specifically policymakers, policymakers make um, legislation based on not understanding that we are a third world country, and sometimes there is no upside to being formally registered. Mm, mm. This is just a once-off um, black swan um, relief, but it's, it's, sometimes there's no formal policy. And I think yeah. that we need, I'm a big believer in inclusive. If we don't seem to find a bridge between those in the first world of our economy and those in the third world economy, we will always have mm. these cracks. And, the, and for me, there needs to be better thinking on these things. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I refuse to believe that there isn't a solution for these things. And I, I refuse to believe that they, didn't, they shouldn't be thinking towards how do you think, okay, Katie and Andres workers with a maximum of 700 workers? Again, we need to create more touch points. Mm. But I guess a starting point, when asked before we even get to the touch points, is to then make the necessary amendments to the UIF. Because remember, you know, that money is not government money. That money is yes. the money of it's employees money. and employers. Gabi co-contributors yes, to, to the fund, you know. And that's the thing. And that's the thing. It's, it, 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 I think we, we, the way we look at it, the way we look at all of these models um, is very, very one-sided. And it's, it's based on the need for it as a piece of paper. Whereas for me, my whole logic is, for me, people who should be registered for UIF is any person who should who is in, who is employed, whether it be formal or not, whether yeah, you're employed. Yeah. Sure. That, I think they need, like I said, we need. I, 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 I think we sometimes think we need to rethink of how we look at it. So if you look at sure. the U.S. labor system, people can claim unemployment. A waitress can claim unemployment. Is a waitress formally raising a formal piece of employment? Not really. Yeah, well, I think, Stesipo, I want us to go to the next one here because we have run out of time. But I think the point you're raising around, um, you know, Issues of contribution, how do you widen that base? Um, I think a lot of that debate is happening. I mean, there's people who are talking about a pay-as-you-go type approach of uh, allowing people to opt in voluntarily. Um, and even in the case of atypical and own-account workers, to have some framework where you can have cross-subsidization between those who earn a bit more vis-a-vis -vis those who 
you know, in a pay-as-you-go system it, it, might it, it, only it, it, be it, it, able to contribute a small amount. Yes, because if you think about it, so, okay, in my day job, how much I pay for the right thing? Because when you could translate, we don't have time. We don't have time. We're going to come back to that story because uh, we're also going to be uh, checking in with uh, Vuyoma Fata and maybe he can say a bit more about that. But uh, certainly a story to come back to. But what's happening out at Transnet Ports? Uh, Transnet, so, as you know, in the past decade, um, Transnet has been, um, there's been corruption, of course, as usual, as usual, but it's been quite capital starved and there needs to be investment into PPP, into um, the a super terminal, specifically as I like to call it, in um, in Durban Port of 100 billion. So they have issued an RFI to bidders to build the infrastructure, um, mainly because of mm, uh, mainly because of two things. Number one, when things were nice in our country and in transit financials, they didn't, they didn't capacitate. And in areas where they did capacitate, as you know, there was quite a bit of corruption, um, quite a bit of corruption. And they need, there is a need, and there is a need to actually increase um, capacity in the port and mm. upgrading of existing rail infrastructure as well. And again, as you know, Part of the, the problem is is that um, in the global world of uh, ports, uh, Durban and Guha are the worst performing ports in the world. Yeah, I saw that. Apparently. I mean, even worse than Luanda. I know. I was so shocked. I was like, I go, we can't be that bad. And the thing is that ultimately, ultimately, this is where my issues with transit is. I agree that transmit on a principal basis um, as a logistics arm, as a logistics um, in terms of rail port pipeline should be held within government. It should not be privatized. But at the same time, transmit has been an inhibitor in, 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 in growth in our country. And they've been an inhibitor as a result of lack of investment. Anyone, and the miners know this best. And let me just say, the miners know this best. Because mm. in times of good, which is where we are, which we didn't have, I'm not sure chance to talk about, uh, in Palaplat and the plant, they're limited. Their biggest constraint is transit. Yeah. And, yeah. and, 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 and then yeah. you start realizing that, in some ways, I agree certain assets should not be privatized. At the same time, you're inhibiting our growth. You're inhibiting taxes. Yeah, of money, black capital to go and. Like, and another thing, and the sad part, think of it this way, this way: the miners are not even asking to pay less. They think capacity. They are asking for capacity. They're being limited. They're not even. Imagine if they, if if they were allowed that capacity, additional tax revenue, additional FDI, additional money even for transnet. Mm. Because they charge for this, and sure. that's the thing. And you, and when you start thinking about how how much they're inhibiting us, mm. how many goods and services can't be import export because of their limited capacity? It's, it's a capacity problem. Yeah, so how the port we're, we're gonna we're gonna have to leave it here. We're gonna have to leave it here because I guess we can go into Transnet and. Uh, 
you know, even what we learned from the recent hacking and, and what that has meant. I mean, uh, you know, to hear from an industrialist saying their machinery didn't arrive it's somewhere in Dubai, it had to come back, uh, I guess is a sign of some of the implications of what we're talking about here. But Snesibo, let's leave it there. As always, a pleasure to catch up with you and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That there was Snesipo Maninjwa uh, helping us with our business wrap. We take a brief break now. When we come back, we uh, take a look at, uh, yeah, ninth and ninth uh, anniversary of uh, the sad and horrific events that unfolded uh, in Marikana, the Marikana massacre. And uh, Joseph Matunjwa is going to join us. He's the AMCU president.